This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to this special series on third world nationalism on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. In the wake of a rise in nationalism around the world and its general condemnation by liberals and the left, in addition to the rise of China and Russia, we have put together this series on third world nationalism to nuance the present discourse on nationalism, to note its centrality to anti-imperial, anti-colonial politics around the world, the reconfiguration of global power, and its inextricability from mainstream politics in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Caribbean. Today, my guests are Brian Roberts and Keith Fulcher, editors of Indonesian Notebook, a source book on Richard Wright and the Bandung Conference, published by Duke University Press in 2016. Welcome, Brian and Keith. It's good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you uh, you guys with us. Uh, I'm joining you from Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Uh, where are you uh, calling in from, Brian? I'm calling in from Utah, Provo, Utah. I'm at Brigham Young University in the English department here. Oh, great. And Keith? I'm here in Sydney, Australia, where um, I'm a retired member of the um, Department of Indonesian Studies at the University of Sydney. Okay, great, great. Uh, a nice global conversation, uh, really, here, spanning time zones and days, even. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we like to start off our uh, interviews by asking our guests to give a background uh, to themselves and to tell us what got you interested in the subject. So, uh, particularly here about Richard Wright and the Bandung Conference. Uh, uh, Brian, you want to start off? Sure, I'm happy to. Well, the way I got interested in Richard Wright and the Bandung Conference um, takes me back to um, my PhD program. I was at the University of Virginia. I was getting a PhD in U.S. literature with a particular interest in African-American literature. And I was writing a dissertation on African-American writers who traveled the world as U.S. diplomats um, with interest in how international representation um, by black U.S. figures um, 
reworked uh, literary and cultural representation that those black U.S. figures were doing within the nation. And so I was, I was writing about people like Frederick Douglass, James Weldon Johnson, some lesser known figures, Henry Francis Downing, George Washington Ellis. And I was interested in black figures who had traveled, but not under the uh, official auspices of international diplomacy. I was looking for something that was quasi-diplomatic as sort of a bridge between the black writers that I was writing about, Frederick Douglass, James Lillian Johnson, and the larger, um, the larger group of African-American writers um, who have been interested in international politics. When I realized that Richard Wright traveled to Indonesia in 1955 to attend the Bandung Conference, this meeting of 29 um, independent, newly independent, increasingly independent countries of, of Asia and Africa, I realized that I wanted to research Wright and I wanted to write a conclusion for my dissertation on Richard Wright in Indonesia. Um, it eventually became the final chapter of my book, Artistic Ambassadors, Literary and International Representation of the New Negro Era. Um, at that time, um, I was interested in the Bandung Conference. I was interested in Indonesia, especially because I had lived in Indonesia as a, as a teenager from age 13 to 15 um, okay. years. And... Um, and so I thought that this would make a good conclusion, a good fifth chapter for my book. Um, and so I, I researched Richard Wright in Indonesia, um, eventually meeting Keith. And the two of us gathered a lot of documents on Wright in Indonesia and the Bandung Conference. Okay. And Keith? Yeah. Well, look, um, as I mentioned, I'm now long retired, but I've got a background in um, uh, the study of modern Indonesian literature. And I suppose over the past 20 years or so, I've become particularly interested in the decolonization period, the, the late colonial era going into early independence. So it roughly covers the period from the 1920s through to the 19, 1960s. Um, uh, one of my uh, post-retirement projects was involvement in a bigger project to look at the the overall uh, cultural history of early independent Indonesia. Um, and as part of that project, I took up some work uh, looking at um, uh, a journal I'd long been interested in from this, this point of view uh, that published between 1954 and 1960, a journal called Confrontasi, Confrontation, that was a literary and cultural affairs uh, periodical in uh, independent Indonesia um, that um, represented one particular strand of post-independence Indonesian thought in relation to culture and literature. And it was going through the, the pages of this, this journal that I came upon um, a lecture by uh, Richard Wright that had been, it was published in this Indonesian journal in English, and it was the copy, a, a transcript of a lecture that Wright had given in Indonesia uh, to a meeting of a, of a study group associated uh, with this journal in, during his visit in 1955. This was really quite 
quite a revelation to me because mm-hmm. um, I, at that stage, didn't was not even properly aware that Wright had visited Indonesia at this time. And mm-hmm. it was very interesting to me to see that he had interacted with this group of writers and intellectuals that I was interested in trying to situate in the in the history of post-independence Indonesian uh, cultural thought and 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 practice. Um, uh, I'd come into to contact with Brian uh, through another Indonesian contact uh, in Indonesian context, which was that um, uh, earlier on I was looking at a collection of essays by the great Indonesian writer Pramodiranantatur from this period, and found in that um, in that collection a reference by Pramodia uh, to Wright and Wright's influence on on him. I published something on that which Brian had come upon and had approached me and that was the beginning of a of a long and very productive um, very wonderful uh, uh, period of, of cooperation and writing between us uh, when I found the the the, 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 the copy of the lecture by Wright in, 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 in Indonesia in 1955. Shortly after that, Brian sent me uh, a Dutch language article written precisely about uh, that, that event. Uh, we both read this article uh, and decided that it really needed to be translated into, Indone- into English and made available to people who were interested in um in in this this the, the story of this interaction from a number of points of view and that was our first cooperative venture we published a translation commentary of this this article in um, PMLA and decided on that basis that we really should start looking more broadly at Wright's visit to Indonesia so that's where it all started and as Brian said that ended up uh, in um, the publication of our our book with um, with Duke in uh, in 2016, and how long did it take you to uh, put the book together? Because I mean, it's it's quite detailed with your annotations and so forth, and and looking at your um, introduction, uh, you know, you went to many many places presenting material and conferences. It seems like a lot of of work went into this. It was a lot of work, and it was, like Keith says, it was, it was a wonderful period of collaboration. I'm not sure what you would say, Keith. Would you say about five years we worked on it together, or was it more like three years? I, I suppose the idea was germinating for about five years. I, I suspect we probably worked intensively on it for, for about three years coming up to the publication. Yeah, so it really was a, a, a long-term project, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I can, I can definitely tell. Um, you know, there, it's, 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 uh, you know, very detailed, very meticulous in, in, in how you contextualize each piece. And well, for the listeners that that may not uh, know uh, about, you know, what your book is, your your book is not really about um, uh, Richard Wright uh, so much as it is to the Indonesian reactions to Richard Wright, which is very interesting. Um, but could you explain, you know, uh, why you wrote this book from that perspective and and if there's any sort of overarching theme and purpose uh, as well? Uh, for- yeah, yeah. Brian, do you want to take the running? Sure, sure I'll lead down. Well, when I started 
researching Richard Wright in Indonesia, I had his book, The Color Curtain, published in 1956. It's his travel log of his, his three weeks in Indonesia, um, and also the account of his one week attending the Bandung Conference. I read that book, I read it twice, and I started reading around in the associated research, the associated literature, with the question, well, what were the Indonesians' reactions to Richard Wright's visit? Um, and can I just ask you to pause here, just for listeners, just to contextualize it. For people who may not know what the Bandung Conference was, and then also, what was Wright's role? Was he a speaker? Was he just an observer? Sure. So the Bandung Conference took place in 1955 in the Indonesian city of Bandung. It's regarded as a watershed moment in post-colonial thought, decolonial history. It's regarded as um, one of the first times the Asian and African countries, which were um, increasingly independent, decolonizing at the time, were coming together for an international conference. And... um, Wright's role was not as a speaker. It was actually as a, he was certified as a, as a reporter. He had a press card. Um, okay. And so he, he needed to get certified through the Indonesian consulate in Paris or embassy in Paris to go and be a, a reporter at the conference. Right. So, so his presence, uh, so his presence, at the conference was not nece- was not really as a participant, but his interaction was sort of around the conference. Is, is that correct? That's right. Mm-hmm. And as an observer, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So I I had interrupted you there. Uh, sorry about that. But uh, it, when asking you about you know the motivation of of writing this book from this particular perspective from from the Indonesian uh, reactions and and you know any sort of themes and uh, or that pushed you to sure. to want to put this thing together and spend the five years doing this labor of love. And so I was so interested in what the Indonesians might have said about Richard Wright that I, um, this was, this was a few years before I met Keith while I was still a PhD student. I figured out the name to me, it seemed like a a big thing at the time. I figured out the name of the the newspaper Wright's host, Mokhtar Lubin. Um, mm-hmm. was editing. And then I went to the National Archives in in Washington, D.C., and I spent a day or two um, reading through all of the um, all of the issues of Indonesia Raya, this newspaper that Mokhtar edited, um, to see if I could find any mentions of Richard Wright. And I'm overstating things when I say reading through the newspaper. I was reading I was scanning my eyes over Indonesian words, looking for the name Richard Wright. <laughs> right. I didn't speak Indonesian at the time. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And so, so you are approaching it from the angle of, uh, of a Richard Wright scholar and a, and, and a scholar of Afro-American literature. And Keith, your, um, your motivation might have been different coming from the other side. Is, is that correct? Yes, definitely. Um, I, I, 
I, as I said, I've got a completely different background from Brian and uh, I, I rely on Brian completely for filling in the right part of the story. But I was particularly interested in the Indonesian reaction to right. And I think especially once I read Colour Curtain, um, as, as Brian was implying, uh, we were we were immediately taken with the the interesting uh, story that there was a completely that that the that the way Wright saw the uh, Indonesian situation was very different from the way the Indonesians saw themselves, and we thought that that Indonesian story needed to be told, needed to be put alongside Wright's account, so that we had an interesting uh, juxtaposition, in a way, of uh, different types of uh, nationalism. Uh, there were both meetings and mis- misreadings, misunderstandings, as well as connections established. And we thought that by teasing out those those uh, interactions, um, we were revealing something. Uh, about the nature of uh, nationalism uh, in the decolonizing world uh, at that time. Yeah, that, that's that's very interesting and very fascinating because um, you know the, uh, the the Bandung Conference certainly um, certainly afterward um, you know was uh, was such an important. A moment and such an important event in decolonization and you know so in the states i mean the first time i heard it was in malcolm x speeches when he was with the nation of islam and talking about you know the the dark world um throwing off its, its chains and 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 so he was using it as an inspiration for the afro-american struggle uh, in the United States. I know at this time, Richard Wright was not in the United States. He was in Paris. Uh, so, so that's an interesting uh, angle as well. Um, but the African-American struggle, uh, which is most often seen as a civil rights struggle, is different from a decolonization struggle. Sometimes people have tried to put it together, like the black nationalists and Malcolm X and before him, I suppose the, the Garveyites. And then after Malcolm X, people like the black Panthers. And, and, uh, but you know, that's kind of been on the margin of the civil rights, um, struggle. So, so, so that's an, that's an interesting, um, you know, juxtaposition and it's not always neat. And, and I suppose what you're looking at here are, you know, some of the specific, uh, um, compatibilities and incompatibilities. Is, is that correct, uh, Brian and Keith? Yes, that's right. Um, one of the things that I like about Paul Gilroy's book, The Black Atlantic, is mm-hmm. the introduction in which he talks about the importance of tracing places where anti-racism and anti-colonialism converge. And I think that's what we have in Wright's trip to Indonesia for the Bandung Conference. Just two years before the Bandung Conference, I jotted this down before our interview. Um, There was a 1953 crisis, um, a a 1953 article in the magazine Crisis, the African-American run magazine Crisis, founded by Du Bois years prior, um, in which one of the commentators said, I doubt that many Negro intellectuals in this country have failed to experience, at least vicariously, a sense of power 
and an understandable feeling of revenge against whites in observing Sukarno, a Dutch schooled intellectual, toss his teachers and masters out of Indonesia, or in watching Kwame Nkrumah being released from jail to become prime minister of the Gold Coast. And so a lot of African-American intellectuals were looking toward um, third world, what, what we've come to call third world decolonization um, as a template for decolonizing um, the mind in the United States. And of course, African-American intellectuals had been interested in in what we now might call decolonizing the mind for decades and, and even centuries. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it really... Um, it really culminated with the, the Bandung Conference and this mid-century um, decolonization. And I also think it's worth commenting that it wasn't simply a case of African-American intellectuals looking toward um, global decolonization as a template, but there were also people in Indonesia, actually, who are looking back at the African-American struggle and saying, this is part of our struggle. For instance, a decade after that crisis article, in 1963, in an Independence Day speech, President Sukarno in Indonesia said, the Indonesian revolution is interlocked with the revolution of mankind. The revolution of mankind is interlocked with the Indonesian revolution. The Negroes in America are now in a revolution, the revolution of the social conscience of man. They demand treatment as equal human beings, treatment which is congruent with the social conscience of man. And so I read those two quotes just because I think they represent a type of reciprocity where if anti-racism and anti-colonialism don't converge perfectly, um, they at least exist in a reciprocal relationship where one might take um a sort of template from the other and vice versa. And I think that's what Wright, when he traveled to Indonesia, was hoping to encounter um, a reciprocal interest in anti-racism and anti-colonialism, where the two melded or almost melded. Right. And Keith, what about uh, you uh, uh, in your reflections on this issue of uh, nationalism, decolonization and the African-American struggle? Yes, I, I think from from my point of view, the interesting thing is that the African-American struggle introduces a very uh, unusual element into the Indonesian story. And that is because... Mm -hmm. um, even though we may say that like all anti-colonial uh, nationalisms, Indonesian nationalism uh, had its roots in the situation of racial inequality, the way the discourse on nationalism evolved in Indonesia, uh, it did not stress uh, a racially-based conflict. Uh, I think that has something to do with the fact that in its very beginnings, in its very radical beginnings, Indonesian nationalism was, was determinedly multiracial. Uh, it included um, what uh, the Indonesians themselves later called native Indonesians, people of, of indigenous heritage. But it's, it was 
it was deeply embedded uh, in the radical Dutch presence, uh, in the Eurasian uh, presence, and also in the in the Chinese Indonesian element. Now that later changed. It, it later changed uh, along uh, racially divided lines within Indonesia itself. But the racial component it was never stressed. And what it did do was to take those early uh, ideas of. Uh, anti-colonialism as an anti-imperial struggle, anti-imperialist struggle uh, that joined together people of different different backgrounds, so that it didn't, it 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 was not. Uh, when when Wright came along and introduced the ideas of a colour-based nationalism, for many of the Indonesians that he came into contact with, this was a new and slightly shocking uh, notion, which they had difficulty coming to terms with. And, and they had difficulty coming to terms with it because it wasn't a part of their nationalist uh, uh, tradition. I think we can probably say, say that fairly confidently without ignoring, of course, that the whole nationalist impulse had come out of a climate of, of racial discrimination. Yeah, that, that's interesting. You know, I'm not uh, very familiar with the Indonesian uh, situation, but I know in Malaysia, you know, there were there was a lot of anti-Chinese feeling among the Malays, and it, you know, it, it, it it sparked up in history over a few times in the 1960s and the, in the late colonial period and the early uh, independence period. Um, were there were there similar things in Indonesia or not, or, or was that not an issue? Uh, it, it, it is an issue, uh, but the situation is very different because the Chinese minority uh, in Indonesia uh, is as a whole, both uh, over generations, much more integrated into indigenous Indonesian culture, and also it's a tiny minority, accounting for about 4% of the, of the total population, I think, uh, in contrast to its its major status uh, and its, its maintenance of Chinese culture uh, in Malaysia. That doesn't mean that uh, throughout uh, Indonesian post-colonial history rather than than pre-colonial than colonial history um, there haven't been outbreaks of violence directed at uh, the, the 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 Chinese minority as has, has been the case elsewhere um, uh, but um, in the period that we're we're talking about uh, uh, it, it 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 was an element um, but yeah, difficult to to compare with the Malaysian situation. I think. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I was just curious about that because I, I'll tell you my own situation is that okay. I um, I was actually born in the states, but I I grew up in Canada, and I I left to s- sort of you know go back to Trinidad. I'm saying go back. Uh, but I wasn't born here. But my family is, has been, you know, here for six generations. Came in the nineteenth century, and um, and and we consider ourselves Trinidadian. I'm of Indian descent. There's a large Indian uh, community in the Southern Caribbean here um, from the post-slavery days. So, but um, but when I when I came into uh, a lot of this consciousness of both anti-colonialism and 
anti-racism, I, I suppose. Um, it was through Malcolm X first, and it was a, and as you said, uh, Keith, it, you know, it was a very racially based concept. And um, and when I came to Trinidad and I transferred a lot of, you know, I, I had brought a lot of these ideas here. It, it, it's it's a different situation in a in a national context where you have more than one race and and so a lot of the ideas um, uh, have to change and and shift which which I I did and and then the, there's another aspect uh, which is the sort of black nationalist versus the civil rights debate in the, in the United States because the nation of Islam. Uh, to some extent, Marcus Garvey, uh, and and I'm I'm trying to think of any other groups afterward. But Nation of Islam were the, the biggest group asking for uh, you know self determination. Well, in fact, the communists that was a big um, platform of the communists. I believe in the 30s it was, perhaps the 20s and the 40s. I'm not sure, but I. Pretty sure the 30s was the height of self determination for the black belt in in. Um, the southern states of the United States, but that never, you know, really became mainstream so much in the United States, and 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 the desire to be independent um, has has never really been looked at uh, looked upon seriously by the mainstream of um, of African American protest. So I I, I wonder, um, you know, and then Richard Wright exiling himself in Paris. Um, I, I, I wonder how much some of these um, tensions, attention being that I don't know if Richard Wright really wanted his own country in the way that an Indonesian uh, would or an Indian or even in the West Indies, um, you know, people uh, were uh, it wanted to run you know our own countries here um, did do you see that uh, tension as as playing out at all in this situation Brian or Keith well I can't say that as far as my understanding goes Richard Wright did not want his own country he felt that he had his own country he had the United States of America Right. And he felt that the United States of America treated him as a second-class citizen. He, um, he's got one unpublished essay in which he gives an account of leaving the United – or deciding to leave the United States to go to Paris. And in that account, he's, he and his wife have tried to buy a home, um, but they're not permitted to buy the home once the current owner realizes that they're black. And that's one of the that's one of the breaking points right in the essay contemplates the difficulty of needing to explain to his to his daughter that in their own country, they're unable to purchase a home because they're black. And mm -hmm. At that point, Wright decides to go to Paris to go to France. And it's I think it's notable that he went to Paris rather than, say, to Ghana. Um, it's yeah. well that he didn't follow in the tradition of, say, Martin Delany, who in the 1850s was arguing that African Americans should relocate to Africa or to the Caribbean. He didn't follow really in the tradition of someone like Pauline Hopkins, who in the Colored American magazine was looking back to Africa for a, a usable past 
and um, and a noble past that African Americans could hold on to. He wasn't um, saying something like Marcus Garvey, Africa for the Africans, and and the ideal of returning to Africa. In that way, he in some ways um, dodged one of the strange convergences. Um, that we see um, with between white nationalism in the United States and black nationalism in the United States, um, being that um, if you ask the KKK um, historically, if they would like people of African descent to go back to Africa, the answer would most likely be yes. Mm-hmm. You ask Thomas Jefferson in um, in his infamous query 14 in notes on the state of Virginia, what should happen to um, enslaved Africans in the United States, his preference would have been that they would have gone back to Africa. Um, Right in not taking the, the black nationalist tack of returning to Africa, um, but rather deciding to go to Paris um, was dodging kind of that strange convergence that sometimes happens between black nationalism and white nationalism. Of course, they're having these desires for antithetical reasons, but it was just something that Wright didn't get, um, didn't get mm-hmm. up in. Yeah. Right. Can I just say that I, I think that, sure. that's a really interesting point and, and, and it's, it's, it's fundamental to the sort of things we're talking about uh, when we introduce Wright and uh, his concerns into Indonesia because, um, as you said, uh, the Indonesian struggle is about the birth of a new nation and everything, everything uh, goes around that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and also, once we get to 1955 and Bandung, where we're in a period of, of, of great confidence about building the future in Indonesia. Um, yeah. So that, that um, uh, when Wright comes with the problem of, of racial inequality, it's difficult for the Indonesians, the Indonesians that he came into contact with, and we can talk more about that if you like, uh, but it's mm-hmm. difficult for them to fit it into their, their framework of, of uh, thinking about the nature of the struggle that they're involved in. Yeah, yeah. I, um, there's, a, there's a couple of things I, I want uh, you to talk about more. Um, one is that um, it, it seems that one of Wright's uh, criticisms of the Bandung Conference and, and what he saw there what is it, I, I don't think he used the term, so I'm using it anachronistically, but the, the idea of reverse racism. And uh, and I, I think he and, and a lot of people use this to critique black nationalism as well and black nationalists uh, you know, being reverse racist. Um, was was that a, a major criticism of right uh, of right against the um, Bandung conference? And, and what would you say his overall impression? Uh, of the of the conference was and and his his conclusions and and lessons drawn and then we'll go to the Indonesian reactions but but I want to get rights um, you know rights impressions and you know and and whatever conclusions he drew first. This is a really good question and I think the the question of rights 
commentary on what we might call reverse racism has two components to it. One, a component that he noted in a meeting that he had with editors of some of the cultural for Congress, I'm sorry, Congress for Cultural Freedom journals that he was contracted to publish essays in. And then another version of this same question that he raises in the color curtain itself. And so I will say that Richard Wright traveled to Indonesia with funding from the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which at the time was not known to be um, a a CIA front organization, although later it was. Um, And Wright had a had a. had a, a negative relationship with the Congress for Cultural Freedom, um, a relationship of a lot of suspicion, but also a relationship of um, compromise, namely that they were funding his trip and he wouldn't have been able to go apparently without their funding. Um, so just, just to be clear, uh, the CCF were not uh, of CIA affiliated at the time, but later they became affiliated. Is, is that correct? Thanks for asking for that clarification. They were CIA affiliated at the time, okay. but it was not publicly known. And right. Known until the 1960s publicly that they were CIA affiliated. Um, okay. Respected that they were um, affiliated with the U.S. State Department. So he had some suspicions of U.S. government affiliation. When he came back from the Bandung conference and talked with the CCF editors, he said that in Asia, he had seen a new and dangerous racism, um, which, and that racism would be something along the lines of what you're calling the um, the reverse racism. So yeah. one that's one line that Wright had on the Bandu conference. But the other line, the more public line that he took, um, while he wasn't talking with the CCF editors, but while he was writing and publishing. Um, the color curtain, his travelogue, is he explained it in a much more nuanced way. At the beginning, he says, what on earth do all of these countries have to do with each other? And then he answers his own question. He says, nothing. They have nothing to do with each other besides the baggage of colonialism and racism that the West has thrust upon them. And so Wright didn't see color as some type of transcendental unifier. Rather, he saw it as specifically what he called a negative unity. It was not a positive unity. It was a negative right. unity in response to the West superimposition of colonialism and racism. And right. that stance that Wright took is the more nuanced stance, the stance that we have from his own um, from his own typewriter rather than the notes that we have from the from the CCF editors. Okay. And, and so was it a, a overall a kind of skeptical view of, of the conference and, and its aims or, uh, or was it positive or yeah, what would you say um, his, his view of the conference, its aims, its mission, etc.? I would say that overall it was positive. Right. Uh, overall, he felt um, he felt pleased with the amount of participation that the representatives of the Asian nations were undertaking at the conference. There is a newspaper account 
in, um, I think it's in Indonesia Raya or another Indonesian newspaper at the time where Wright says that he is not, he was not pleased with the level of involvement that, um, the African nations took up during the conference. And I'm not sure if that had to do with a reticence to speak at the conference, if it had to do with underrepresentation in terms of numbers. Um, but overall, he was pleased. I mean, he looked at Sukarno, Indonesia's president. He, know, he looked at Nkrumah, who was not there. Um, but he looked at both of them as, as great men and great men that were in the position to lead these decolonizing countries toward better better things and better days. And I, I do think that um, even if there were critiques of the conference and the color curtain, um, that's not my overarching takeaway. My overarching takeaway is Wright thought highly of the conference. He was excited by the fact of the conference. He said it was a conference at which two thirds of the world's population was going to be. And he, he desperately, I mean, desperately, I don't mean to use a word with, with negative connotations, but he very much wanted to go to the conference and be there to witness it and report on it. He wrote a book on it. Um, one of the takeaways, I think, though, at the end was, dear Western world, look at these Asian and African countries. They're upset with colonialism. If you don't change, if you don't start supporting decolonization and anti-racism, you're going to have a world of trouble. You could say a third world of trouble because the, the communists in China and the USSR are waiting to take the Asian and African countries under their wing. And so if there were an overarching message that Wright took from the Bandung Conference, I would say it was that. It was a warning to the Western world. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right. Keith, do you, uh, do you have anything to add? Do you agree? Do you disagree? Uh, I, I think that last point that, that Brian made is, is, is very important, actually, um, uh, because uh, rights, yes, I, I think right took away from the conference this, this sense that everyone, as the written record suggests, everyone present had this enormous excited feeling that, as Brian said, two-thirds of the world's population are represented here, uh, and this is the dawning of a new age. But right as, at that time, uh, a former communist um, believed that the conference also showed up the danger that um, 
that, that confronted this new, the newly emerging world from, uh, you, you know, we, we've got to put it all in a Cold War context too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he, he, he took that message away um, and that was a part of his Indonesian experience, I think. And that was a part of his Indonesian experience that he shared with the, peop- the Indonesians that he came into contact with. Yeah, the Cold War context. We we can um, we can speak a bit about that before we get to the Indonesian um, reaction, uh, because I I think it his communism. I'd like you guys to speak about his communism because the communists have had different lines. Um, you know, as, as I said, there was one part. Uh, there was a time, uh, especially during Stalin's. Uh, the Stalinist period, where they were about self-determination, just like how you had the the independent uh, republics or the so-called independent republics in within the USSR that were ethnically based, and and they were that was the kind of policy they were having, uh, they, they were proposing for the United States and and um, so the Black Belt and independence there. But then you also have the Socialist International, and you had like the Trotskyists and. You know, um, and and they were against the idea of socialism in one country, and that socialism had to be international. You had people like George Orwell, for example, who um, you know he he was against um, imperialism, let's say, uh, but he did, but he did not advocate in independence for India, for example. Uh, he he just thought the empire should be rearranged more equitably on so on socialistic lines uh, he, he thought it would be a disaster for India to be independent um, even someone like Margaret Mead although she wasn't as far as I know she wasn't a, a member of the Communist Party although she was very left-leaning she, she also had this idea she wasn't really pro-nationalist she 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 didn't like the breaking up of of uh, of, of territories along along these lines, and she, she was looking at a kind of global, you know, I guess you could say socialist government. So I, I'm just wondering about Richard Wright. Um, you know, kind of was he uh, falling in with this kind of? Did he have a kind of global socialist utopia in mind? Was it a kind of? Uh, uh, you know, national. You know, what was his views towards nationalism? Was he skeptical of all nationalism because of his socialism? I, I can you elaborate uh, or clarify any of that for me, Brian or Keith? Well, Kirk, you've done such a. Um really a marvelous job tracing various strands of communism. And I'm afraid that I won't be able to um, <laughs> involvement um, to that same degree. I can touch on a few points. I mean, I in the, in the 1930s, he was, he was writing and publishing poems um, among them, um, poems that were explicitly communist. He has a poem. I, I'm, I'm recalling I saw black and red hands raised together. Um, I know that he was interested in, in, um, in socialist realism. Um, and some of his short stories from the 1930s were inspired by socialist realism. Um, he did publish uh, a famous and infamous essay called I Tried to Be a Communist. It was published in the in the collection, uh, the anti-communist collection, The God That Failed. Right. Um, and in that essay, he talks about, um, he talks about 
abuses that he received um, at the intellectual hands of the Communist Party. He talks about having felt like he was um, being made a tool in the struggle for revolution rather than that the revolution really were for him. Um, that essay has been critiqued and um, and Barbara Foley has done a has done a great job of looking back at that essay and um, and realizing that some of Wright's narratives weren't, um, I guess we could say completely um, I, I think they were true to how he experienced them, but there were some aspects of the essay that maybe weren't fully um, weren't in full fidelity to to the facts as some researchers have found them. Um, but it's interesting to note that there was um, an Indonesian version of the God that failed that was published in Indonesia. It was. Um, it was published by the, um, the publishing house, and I'm not sure what else they may have published. Maybe it was just a fly-by-night publishing house, but it was published by the um, Front Anti-Communist Indonesia, uh, okay. the Anti-Communist Front of Indonesia. Um, and so Wright's, Wright's essay, I Tried to Be a Communist, was circulating in Indonesia before he actually attended the um, the Bandung Conference and met with these Indonesian intellectuals who were also not on the same page with communism. Um, and one can imagine the, the, the CCF, the Congress for Cultural Freedom, um, may have been in collaboration with the anti-communist front of Indonesia in publishing this essay by right before um, he actually appeared at the conference. Because in the Indonesia Raya articles that announced Wright's arrival in Indonesia, um, that's one of the things that they mentioned. He published an essay in the volume, The God That Failed. He is a former communist and now an anti-communist. Oh, interesting. How, uh, Keith, yeah, do you have any comments to make about you know Richard Wright and his communism and how that may have affected his, um, his, his view of the conference? Uh, no, I, I don't think I, I've got the the background uh, here to okay. comment on Wright specifically. And, uh, you know, Brian's mm -hmm. better equipped for that one. Sure, sure. And um, one thing I'm also interested in uh, that I I only know the sketchiest of details, but I'm fascinated about, and I'm going to explore it more in this series, is uh, the Japanese policy of Asia for the Asiatics, the uh, Imperial Japan, and their role actually in decolonization um, and in helping Subhash Chandra Bose in India in also, uh, you know, I believe decolonizing um, or declaring some sort of Indonesian independence. I don't know if it was as a puppet state to Japan uh, in in the forties uh, during the war and, uh, and and that whole and I think there was a racial element to it. I'm trying to get an author a, a book. I, I can't remember the author's name, but I saw the book. It's called Race War and looking at the Jap Japanese propaganda in World War II about pushing the Europeans out of of Asia. Um, does that uh, does that have any relevance uh, to this at all, Keith? Oh yes, definitely. Um, 
Uh, one of the stories that we found most fascinating in uh, in our documents uh, and our research was an element of uh, an interaction between Wright uh, and his um, the, the the Indonesian uh, intellectuals and uh, writers he came into contact with, specifically over this question uh, that you're raising. Um, it turned on the question uh, of race. Brian can perhaps fill in details that, that I'm, I'm forgetting, but it turned on the, the question of race in that Wright put to his, uh, uh, his Indonesian um, interlocutors in this, this conversation um, that, uh, well, no, put it this way, he he asked them the question that you're asking, was there a sense of solidarity uh, between Indonesians and Japanese when uh, the, the, the Japanese uh, uh, ruled Indonesia during the war? Um, he said this was another, uh, another uh, uh, coloured race. Um, was there a sense of solidarity? Uh, and as our documents point out, this, the story that tells, the, the, the account that tells this story uh, says that some of the Indonesians actually burst out laughing uh, at, at this this suggestion uh, yes. right said what were the Indonesia what were the Japanese like and they said they were bloodsuckers of the worst kind the Indonesians suffered terribly under under the uh, the Japanese occupation um, mm. uh, at all levels of, of, of society from the elite right down to to ordinary people um, and um, and and this, this same account that um, that we have in in our book talks of one one of the Indonesians uh, uh, telling a story of visiting uh, a village head, who, uh, when something it was to do with the with a proposal for this is post-war Indonesia now, the establishment of a Japanese-owned factory uh, in this this um, village area, um, when. This idea put to to the village head. The story was that the, the man turned and spat on the ground and said, "Those yellow monkeys." Um, it, it 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 was. It was just incomprehensible uh, to the Indonesians and especially the Indonesians that Wright came into contact with for specific reasons uh, that there might be any notion of racial solidarity so that the, the Japanese idea, as you said, you know, there, there was uh, during the war the Japanese propaganda of a, a greater, co uh, greater uh, East Asia co-prosperity sphere uh, in which, um, you know, the, the former colonised peoples would all share prosperity under the Japanese umbrella. Um, this proved to be uh, initially perhaps uh, uh, attractive to Indonesians, but it proved eventually to be a, 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 a terrible, terrible uh, deception. Um, so that in, in post-war Indonesia, there was a, a, as much a struggle to rehabilitate the image of the Japanese as there was all over the Pacific. Right, right, right. And um, another uh, thing I wanted to, to talk about too was um, the, just on the CCF issue. When I, when I f uh, first came across that in, in your work, uh, it, it just got me thinking because I, I wonder how, you know, how sophisticated they, they were. It, it sounds like they might uh, really have known that there are some fundamental incompatibilities between the kind of 
African-American struggle within the United States and the decolonization struggle or something. It's like, um, and, and you do refer to it that, that the CCF and, you know, uh, you know, and I'm assuming the CIA, um, you know, we're looking to kind of destabilize this growing nascent emergent third world solidarity and, and using Richard Wright as a kind of, uh, you know, spanner in the works. Uh, do you, do you th- um, agree with that assessment? Do you think that's maybe too conspiratorial or do you think it's um, pretty accurate? Well, what's your view of that, Brian and Keith? Uh, let's start with Brian. I'll just say that generally I agree with it, but I would say that it's half of the story. The CCF, I think, was definitely sophisticated enough to know that they could destabilize um, what we could say African-American to Asian or Indonesian relations by people together who would be in disagreement. Um, And that could be a, a propaganda coup for the United States in the Cold War. But what happens if they send Richard Wright to Indonesia and um, right, and the Indonesians get along famously. Yeah, the, the so it was CIA, a risk. The CIA, the CCF, they still win. Be- yeah. During the Cold War, the United States was realizing that African American, um, that the U.S. record on race relations was an Achilles heel for the United States in in courting um, so-called third world countries. And, right. Um, and so if Wright could go to Indonesia and get along very well with these Indonesian intellectuals, um, it may well be that the Indonesian intellectuals come away from the experience and say, look, we've met Richard Wright, one of the most famous African-American writers. He seems to be doing well. He's published many books. They've been well received. Um, and so we can now feel like the United States might not be all that bad on race relations. But the flip side is if Wright goes over and they disagree, they don't get along, and Wright is complaining about race relations and the Indonesians say, you're bringing up race all the time. We're tired of talking about race. We feel uncomfortable (laughs) with your discussions of race. Um, The CIA, the CCF also wins. Can I yeah. add something there? I think, Brian, sure. we got something. Um, uh, didn't you find a reference somewhere uh, to the specific mention that the, the, the CCF um, and perhaps the CIA by extension saw it as specifically to their advantage to have a critical black intellectual um, uh, representing the United States, so it wasn't some wasn't just the idea that hey, black people can do all right in the U.S., but hey, um, the 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 U.S. Uh, can accommodate um, this diversity of, of opinion. We can have we're we're quite happy to have a spokesperson uh, for the U.S. who's 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 um, uh, Who's, who's concerned to, to expose racial inequality in the US. This, kind, this is part of the mission to promote the, 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 the merits of Western democracy as against the more closed systems of the communist world. That's right. One of, the, one of um, Mokhtar Lubis's um, main interlocutors 
in the United States, or maybe I guess not in the United States, but affiliated with the United States through the, the CCF was Michael Josselson. And um, Mokhtar and this editor of, um, or, or director of the CCF were in frequent correspondence. Um, he was, Mokhtar was often writing to the director of the CCF, hey, could you please send me this book or Work. Even at one point, I've seen correspondents saying, I, I need some new canvases for my paintings. Um, and so could you send me some canvas to paint on? And so Mokhtar had a great friend in, jo in Jocelyn. Um, and if Jocelyn was recommending right to Mokhtar saying, you know, I think you're going to get together really well. I think you'll find a lot to talk about. I think it'll be a really great visit. Um, that was a sign, as Keith is saying, that this representative of, um, of Western democracy, uh, an advocate for Western democracy, didn't feel threatened by a black intellectual, but rather wanted him to go to Indonesia. And so um, it, was, it was kind of a sign to um, the, the Indonesian intellectuals that Wright was interacting with. They knew um, how he was coming. And they, um, they knew that he had some endorsement from advocates of Western democracy. And so this was all part of the, the benign quality or the liberalness of Western democracy. Right, right. So um, in terms of the, the people he met now and... Uh, who were who were some of the the people he met? Was it mainly uh, writers, uh, politicians? Um, was he meant to do a kind of a report in that way? Or and yeah, if could you tell me about that? And then and then what were you know some of the the issues that came up with the different perspectives? I know sometimes it was a plain kind of unreliability of of Richard Wright's uh, accounts, as as you mentioned in the book um, but other times it, it's just coming from a quite different perspective <clears throat> can you elaborate on that let's say keith yeah uh, brian would you like to go first and just make some comments about the people that he met sure so Wright met a group of intellectuals that were um that were affiliated with um what was known as universal humanism in Indonesia. Um, and actually, Keith, I think you might be better to lead out on this one. Okay. Uh, I was just thinking in terms of Kurt's question of uh, uh, we, we know that, that Wright did meet uh, when he arrived in, in Jakarta uh, uh, several politicians, didn't he? We know more about the story of his interaction with writers and cultural figures, but he, he, there were contacts set up uh, for him to discuss uh, the bigger questions with a range of Indonesian politicians. But as Brian's getting at, um, what we were particularly interested in were the, the, the cultural and, and in intellectual contacts. Um, I think it's um, it, 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 it's it, it, the, the CCF connection is is the crucial thing because, mm -hmm. uh, as Brian has said, uh, 
uh, Wright's main contact in Indonesia uh, was the editor and writer Mohtar Lubis, um, who himself had CCF uh, affiliations, and he was part of a group that at that time was actually engaged in talks about setting up a branch of the CCF uh, in in uh, Indonesia itself. Now, mm. it's also very important to say that this was a tiny minority uh, intellectual tradition in Indonesia at the time. Indonesia as a whole was going in a different direction uh, under Sukarno, under the PKI, the Indonesian Communist Parties, uh, two types of, of Islam, uh, modernist and traditionalist Islam. That was where the popular sentiment was. But Wright was brought into contact in this very brief visit. That's the other thing we should say, that it was in some senses a very superficial encounter with Indonesia because he was there for three weeks uh, in total, one week at the conference and two weeks taken up with meetings and, and uh, interactions with um, uh, mainly uh, artists and writers. And as Brian is, 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 is saying, uh, these these this group in Indonesia that had the CCF connections were a group that had grown out of the Indonesian revolution with the the I suppose we can we can call them cultural modernizers. They were people who uh, were concerned with the modernization of Indonesian culture, the, the 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 foundation and growth of a modern Indonesian nation that would be anti-colonial but not anti-Western. That was a crucial uh, uh, part of, of 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 their outlooks. So that um, that they had strong um, uh, Dutch connections. They all spoke Dutch which was unusual in Indonesia at that time because uh, the Dutch had, had uh, under colonial policy, restricted, uh, deliberately restricted access to the Dutch language. It's a completely different story to what happened in India and, and in the French colonies. The, the, um, the, the, the number of Indonesians who are exposed to Dutch language education was tiny um, and the Dutch-speaking elite in Indonesia was tiny. Now, we're in the context of those people it's important when we say that to say to to guard against the idea that this was uh, a little uh, salon intellectual elite, you know, who were who were West, the, the the Westernized minority. They were Westernized, but they were fiercely nationalistic uh, as well, and we shouldn't uh, discount that. So we've got to find a way in our own thinking of of of, of uh, combining those the, those two outlooks of fierce fiercely nationalistic outlooks uh, combined with um, uh, combined with the notion that the West had lesson had had uh, had the lesson of a model that should be taken and Indonesianized you know as the basis for a modern nation state but the the crucial thing is that they were being that by 1955 they were on the way towards uh, marginalization and um, and 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 even uh, you know they they, they became um, um, they be- <laughs> repression of some sort. Yes, that, that that's right. Huh? Because the the um, 
the, the, the cultural intellectual world was splitting at the time between the, 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 the Western modernizers. And Brian mentioned this term universal humanism. This was the term that was given in Indonesia around this time to cultural outlooks that, um, that talked about the unity of humanity, um, you know, which was, was, which was seen as anathema by the other side, which was stressing uh, anti-imperialism, uh, uh, radical nationalism, uh, and was seeking it. It, it w- was looking to the to the communist world um, for its its models for what Indonesia might become. Now, those two two traditions, as they were in Indonesia, were at the time we're talking about pretty well evenly balanced. But by by the second half of the 1950s into the 1960s, the balance completely changed. And the people that Wright interacted with in, 19, in 1955 found themselves uh, a, 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 a dispossessed minority um, uh, who who were on the way towards um, you know disappearance from the Indonesian cultural stage, um, so that he uh, uh, he interacted with this minority tradition in in 1955 that were intellectual Western or Western oriented uh, intellectuals on a nationalistic basis, um, rather than uh, the more popular base. Of the way um, the the concepts of cultural modernization in Indonesia were, were going, and that influenced the nature of the interaction. It would have been quite different had uh, had had Wright come to Indonesia not under CCF auspices, which limited the range of people he he, he spoke to, um, but under an uh, under under. A, a different arrangement that would have brought him into into contact with a much wider uh, wider spectrum of, of Indonesian thought. Mm, that's interesting. How, how do you think it, it would have been different uh, in terms of his eventual conclusions? Um, obviously, he would have spoken to different people, but do you think that would have given him a a different outlook? And and also another thing, I guess, is that. Would it have been possible because would those other people have been able to speak English, be familiar with his work? Because, you know, I have a, a similar kind of experience when I um, interact with people from India, which is ancestrally where my, um, you know, uh, my family comes from. But you know, we've been up six generations. And um, uh, I mean, when, when you speak to an uh, the the Indian elite that is very you know well educated in English, it is very different from you know someone who's not so well spoken in English. But even you know when I go to I mean, my wife is from Mauritius and and you know when you speak to to people who can speak English well, you know you're getting a kind of elite sort of view. And I and I often wonder in non English speaking places in in. Uh, Know, in Asia and and elsewhere Africa, if you can really uh, be a, a kind of full blooded national nationalist, if you speak English, <laughs> but 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 I, I understand you know the, about this the kind of modernizing um, uh, group that yes we're Western educated uh, you know very well versed and so forth, but we're absolutely nationalist as well because you know we we have these tendencies here in in the West Indies very much. 
So yeah, but but what? Uh, but uh, you, you know, you did say that you think his experience would have been very different, and and uh, so so yeah. So what other conclusion do you think he might have come to? And would would the inter intercultural communication have been possible because of the language barrier? Yes, uh, listening to you to those comments makes me feel that uh, I've probably given the, the the wrong impression with what I was just saying. Um, okay. The 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 uh, the Dutch educated in Indonesian elite split in their in their allegiances, so that the 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 people that Wright came into contact with were. Uh, a, a group associated with the Indonesian Socialist Party, which mm. was uh, by that time being edged out of the, the political spectrum. Other parts of the elite had followed the uh, uh, Sukarno uh, and the Indonesian Nationalist Party. Now, mm. I think that it's speculative, of course, yeah, but of course. I think had Wright's contacts introduced him to those circles, he may have come away from Indonesia with a, 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 a completely different different view of um, of Indonesian decolonization. Because he be more uh, pessimistic or more optimistic? No, more optimistic. Okay, uh, he, he interacted with the people who who uh, who felt that things were were, were going wrong. Because that right. Indonesia was turning away from the Western model at that time, and, okay. and it was turning away from the Western model under Sukarno and the nationalists, who themselves were Dutch educated, um, their their you know their elite, as well as the communists. The communists were cosmopolitan intellectuals as well uh, mm -hmm. at that time. Yeah. Um, uh, right could if, if right came with in what was in Indonesia would have been seen as the burden of anti-communism. Um, if he didn't, if he hadn't come uh, as uh, a representative of the the uh, of the West, as against the the the, the, the non-West in, in a, co a Cold War context, he would have been free to interact with people of of very uh. different uh, outlooks and people that he could have intellectually communicated with just as well as those that he did did meet. So I think that we can probably say uh, that he would have come away from Indonesia with um, somewhat different uh, impressions had, uh, had, had he not, um, had his Indonesian experience not been me mediated uh, through the CCF. Uh, I understand, yeah. Bri uh, Brian, do you have anything you want to add to that? Well, I'll just mention one of the kind of stories of intrigue that Keith and I got to trace. It was really fun. While I went to the, the Beinecke Library at Yale University to look through the, um, the Indonesian archive on Richard Wright, I found a sheet of paper that was kind of a who's who's list of Indonesian intellectuals, most of them associated with the Indonesian Socialist Party, like Keith mentioned. And so those were most mostly the people that he was interacting with. But in the margin, written in after it was all typed up, there was a curious little note. It, it listed Pramuja Nantatur, and then um, underneath that, whoever it was doing the writing said, in some way inspired by Richard Wright, um, which was an intriguing suggestion. And Keith and I indeed found confirmation that um, Pramuja was inspired by Richard Wright. Pramuja published an essay in which he um, praised Wright's bitter realism, as he said. 
And Keith and I, I think one of the, the holy grails of our, of our research project would have been to find um, a smoking gun for Richard Wright and Pramuja in the room at the same time. Um, right. Wondered if maybe Wright coming under, visiting Indonesia, as Keith says, under the burden of anti-communism might have made it less likely for Wright and Pramuja who would have been maybe his most likely interlocutor and um, somebody that he might have found um, the greatest common cause with, um, if just that anti-communist badge that he wore in the wake of publishing, I tried to be a communist, if that made the meeting less likely or maybe even impossible, who knows, maybe a meeting did happen. Um, certainly, Pramuja admired Wright and others in the community thought that um, Pramuja was inspired by Wright. I think Wright would have enjoyed meeting Pramuja, um, but it never did happen. Keith, I wonder if you have any speculations on um, the the converging or diverging ideologies between um, Wright and Pramuja. Uh, no, except to say that that uh, it, it, what you're saying is is a crucial point, as as we discovered, and I think the example of Pramudya is is um, is a very useful one um, because, uh, as you say, there was a potential. We we if we know both. Uh, know both men and, and their thinking, there was a potential for a meeting of minds between those two uh, at this time. And it didn't happen for political reasons. Um, uh, Pramudya was at this time already drifting uh, towards the left, um, which in Indonesia meant the the, uh, the cultural organisation associated with the Indonesian Communist Party. And we can imagine that, that he, he would have had a very ambiguous uh, reaction uh, to uh, to write in Indonesia, uh, we think that it's it's likely, though we can't, we can only speculate about it. We think that it's likely that Pramudya was probably there in the audience for one of Wright's lectures uh, in Jakarta after the Bandung Conference. And it's fascinating to think, had he been there, had he been sitting there looking at this man that he so admired. Um, uh, what he would have made of uh, of right and 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 what he was saying it's it's an irony uh, and it's an illustration of the, the all the nuances of this transnational uh, interactions that were going on uh, uh, at the time um, and in a way uh, you know serves to remind us that the the, the, the contacts weren't weren't easy or, or, or simple. They, they were they were very complicated, and, and people were going in different directions. So that they they you know in many ways passed like ships in the night. Whereas they they could have uh, uh, spoken meaningfully to each other. Uh, and in this one crucial example, it's great that Brian brought it up. In this one crucial example between who the the man who was to emerge as as Indonesia's uh, most famous novelist of the twentieth century. Uh, and this uh, uh, inter international figure who was so important in the decolonizing world, the contact didn't happen as, as it could have. Right. right. Now, um, I mean, the, the, the bulk of your book is, is about Indonesian responses and, and you speak about uh, polyvocal history and the need to consider non-English language perspectives in these transnational cultural exchanges uh, is, is there um is 
would you say that that most of the responses um, are, are share more things in common? Of of course, they would each be individualistic in their own way. But but do do they share a, a sort of uh, common um, either skepticism or, or criticism, which I know some of them certainly had, even about, as we, we talked about earlier, the, the historical accuracy of, of some of the accounts, but then also the, the interpretive thing about race and color. Um, were, were, were they all basically on the same page of that type of criticism or, or what? Brian, Keith? Well, I'll, I'll just say that the two main people that we have documented um, criticizing Wright for his discussions of color. Well, I guess two and then three. Um, one would be Beb Fouke, who wrote A Weekend with Richard Wright, which was that Dutch language article that Keith mentioned at the beginning of the interview. Um, and the became kind of the forerunner of our larger project, Indonesian Notebook. Um, she criticized Wright in that document for um, for overemphasizing color. She talked about how it, how it made her feel uncomfortable when he would say things like, oh, good, the white folks have left now. Now we can be here on our own. Um, and then there was Mokhtar Lubis, who, um, according to folk, um, described Richard Wright as color crazy, always talking about color. Um, there was also um, the Indonesian poet and um, short story writer, Situr Situmuram, who was involved in that exchange that Wright had about um, whether Indonesians felt um, a sense of racial solidarity with the Japanese. Um, it was Situr who um, took offense and, um, and and actually, as as we understand, spoke rudely to Wright or raised his voice to Wright in response to Wright's suggestions about a common cause with the Japanese. Um, and so there is that component of criticism geared toward Wright's um, what Mokhtar Lubis called um, his colored glasses. Lubis uh, said, Richard Wright came to Indonesia, he saw everything through colored glasses. Um, and so that there's that criticism um, of so-called colored lenses. But then there's also the criticism of feeling like you've been misre misrepresented. And Wright certainly did take poetic liberty with in writing The Color Curtain, um, Keith and I have looked at various um, drafts of The Color Curtain as it unfolded. One of the very strange revelations, realizations for me, after I had read The Color Curtain twice, Keith read it um, and he emailed me as I was on a plane to Indonesia. And well, I mean, before I got onto the plane to Indonesia, he emailed and I was rereading The Color Curtain with the context of this email. Keith said, I'm so surprised that Richard Wright would represent Sutan Takdir Ali Siabana, this famed Indonesian intellectual, as if he interviewed him while he was still in Europe. Because mm -hmm. Sutan Takdir Ali Siabana was in Indonesia at the time. But the way Richard Wright tells the story in Indonesian Notebook, the interview takes place, I believe it's in Paris. Um, and it was just kind of, and I, 
I at first emailed Keith and I said, no, it couldn't be. I mean, maybe he's talking about an in, another Indonesian intellectual. But then I reread it with um, these lenses of, oh, look at this episode. Yes, that's that's STA to a T. That certainly is him. It couldn't be anybody else. Um, and so, I mean, just strange um, misrepresentations, which I don't take as malicious on Wright's part, but rather... Right as him using poetic license like he like he does as a writer um and that's yeah. one of the things that his dutch translator said he's entitled to take poetic license he's entitled to condense characters so that the narrative makes more sense he's entitled to play around with the timeline but of course if you're one of the people who is a character being condensed or being transported via poetic license from Indonesia to Paris, that doesn't feel very good. It feels strange. It feels disingenuous. Yeah. yeah. Keith, anything you want to say about the Indonesian? Uh, the, the only thing that I'd add is, is that, um, yeah, it's great that, that, that Brian's brought up that thing. I think we needed to, to stress that point of Mokhtar Lubis's view of, of a right seeing Indonesia through everything, through coloured glasses. That was very strange to the Indonesians. Uh, that was partly because they saw themselves as cosmopolitan nationalist intellectuals um, who interacted with the rest of the world on, on an equal basis. But the, just the, the small point to, to add is that in the book we also looked at uh, Indonesian reactions to right through subsequent history, coming right up to um, uh to close to the present, uh, as it was at that time in the in the fiftieth um, um, uh, anniversary of the of the Bandung Conference, um, but. Um, what, what we noticed is that Indonesians continued to revere Wright as, as uh, an important figure, but perhaps in, a way, in the way that, that Wright would not have wanted to be remembered, they, they, they revered him as, as a writer. Just as the first in documented Indonesian connection with, with, with Wright was Pramudia's acknowledgement in an early 1950s essay uh, of how important his encounter with Wright's novels was, for his practice uh, uh, as a writer. So that theme continued through. They admired his thought, they admired his writing, but they kind of sidestepped the thing that was important to write back in 1955, which was the rise of the coloured peoples. That was the thing that didn't resonate in Indonesia at that time or later, I think we can say. Well, that's interesting. But, I mean, if so if we were to... Um uh, take take the experience as a whole. I mean, what um, you know? What lessons? What are the lessons and conclusions that readers can draw from your examination of the of these responses to Richard Wright to this um, uh, polyvalent um, uh, history, um, this polyvocal history, I should say? Um, uh, what? What, what what does it say about nationalism, about third world nationalism, uh, and yeah, um, and and any lessons that you think this this interaction uh, says to us? One of the things that I would that I would just mention would be that sometimes we can take third world history as monolithic. We can take decolonization as monolithic. 
And I think to some degree, many of us are guilty of doing this at different times. I mean, Wright didn't see things as monolithic oftentimes, but sometimes he did. One time he did was in, um, in his book, White Man Listen, where he talked about the flood of colonialism receding and leaving islands of free men. Um, these islands of free men, in a lot of ways, in Wright's head, this, from Wright's point of view at this point in this essay, were, um, were homogenous. They, they were an archipelago of maybe undifferentiated islands. Um, right. One of the things that Keith and I were reminded of over and over again is that each moment of decolonization um, whether that moment is the moment of a country or the moment of a particular regime in a particular country, each moment of colonization has its own history and none of it is the same. I mean, there are common themes that run throughout, but you have right working on decolonizing his mind and enjoying the, the idea of seeing the world decolonizing, um, walking into another place of decolonization and sounding notes that were so dissonant that Mokhtar Lubis probably would have felt more commonality with, with, um, with his CCF contact, Michael Jocelyn, than he would have right. And so um, I think, I think, Thinking about decolonization is just a reminder that every moment has its own um, specificities, um, its own indigenous counterclaims to um, coloniality, and and it needs to be. Um, we need micro histories. We need smaller histories um, so that we can get a, a better understanding of what happened. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, Keith. Uh, how about you? Yeah, no, I, I think Brian puts it very well. I, I don't have anything significant to add to that. I, I just, uh, as Brian was talking, I, I was just looking at a, a draft of one of his forthcoming essays um, and uh, uh, underlined a, a couple of phrases that I'd just like to put on the record. Brian speaks of the, 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 the encounters that Wright had in Indonesia as speaking speaking to us about the multiversioned materiality of post-colonial history. I think that's a great phrase. And he goes on to say, this messy materiality offers to upend our sense of what we speak of when we speak of rights and Bandung's position in relation to third world liberation. It's just uh, uh, he's what he's stressing there uh, is, as he just said, you know, we've got to look at all the micro histories and understand the what Brian calls the messy materiality of it all, um, the meetings and the failed meetings, the meetings of minds and the, and the misunderstandings to get a proper sense of the, 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 the tangibility uh, of the process of, uh, of uh, decolonization and third world liberation uh, at the time. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Very, uh, those are very good and important points. Um, as as we uh, move to close, I just want to uh, ask you to um, tell our audience if there's anything that you're working on that you'd like them to know about. I know you're you're retired, Keith, but but you seem to still be doing some work. So I don't know if you have anything. If you do, please please let us know, and, and Brian as well. 
Uh, is there anything you're working on right now? Keith did mention something that you're doing, Brian. So right now I'm, I'm just going through the proofs for a book called Border Waters with the, the, um, the alternate title Amid the Archipelagic States of America. And mm. the, the book is that the United States has usually been regarded as a continental nation state. We've got a From Sea to Shining Sea Manifest Destiny. In 1776, all the way back then, Thomas Paine was saying, it's absurd to think that an island would perpetually govern a continent. And so the United States has had its very sovereignty hang from this notion of its continentality. But what I'm doing with border waters is I'm asking what would happen if we replaced the continent with the geographical form of the archipelago. And a lot of people might listen to that and say, well, sure. I mean, sure. What would happen? That's counterfactual. And yet I would say it's not counterfactual to the degree that the United States is the, could be regarded as the largest archipelagic nation in the world. It controls or it claims sovereignty over more ocean space than land space. And it claims sovereignty over more ocean space than any other country on earth. Um, and yet it calls itself a continental country. And then so my book, Border Waters, is about the new stories and new mythologies that we might tell if we took the United States claims to ocean territory seriously. Um, it's a it's I guess I see it as a remythologization project um, moving away from um, the, the classic American, U.S. American frontier and into waters that many U.S. Americans haven't been familiar with at all. It takes inspiration from um, thinkers in the Caribbean like Edward Glissant and Jamal mm -hmm. Brathwaite and also thinkers in Indonesia who were indebted to the um, Wawasan Nusantara or archipel archip archipelago outlook. Interesting, interesting. And and um, you do you have a website or anything like that where people can um, look at your your work? Sure, um, it's got a website through Duke University Press. I think if you okay. if you if you Google Border Waters, yeah, this book will be the first one that comes up. So that's the best Excellent. way. Excellent. Okay, great. And what about you, Keith? Uh, just briefly, as a retired person, um, I've been doing different kind of projects. I've been busy the last uh, two or three years with translation projects. I have uh, a long-standing, a 40-year friendship with um, an Indonesian writer who was uh, in the period we've been talking about a part of the opposing camp to uh, the, the people that Wright interacted with in Indonesia in that he was associated mm. with the, um, the communist-aligned um, uh, uh, cultural organisation in the 1950s and 60s and, as a result of that, spent 10 years uh, in prison after 1965 as a political prisoner uh, and lived a very uh, difficult existence uh, under um, uh, the Indonesian regime after he was um, released or returned to society, as the Indonesians put it, in the late 1970s. It was only after the um, collapse of the Indonesian regime under uh, President Suharto uh, that he was able to, to publish a long autobiographical novel based on his 10 years as a political prisoner. Uh, I think it's a really important document and, and it certainly has no... Uh, 
equivalent that I'm aware of in the history of modern Indonesian literature. It was published, it, it's a long novel of over 500 pages in its original Indonesian, published in 1998, um, which I spent quite a lot of time uh, working collaboratively where necessary with, with the author to produce a translation of, um, which I think is really significant, um, both for Indonesia and for the the, uh, uh, the the human rights discourse uh, in the in the international world. Uh, it was due to be published by a, a, a publisher in in um, in Jakarta in Indonesia that publishes Indonesian literature in translation in the early part of this year. But uh, sadly, it's run into a COVID induced uh, funding crisis, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been held up uh, indefinitely. So in the meantime, I've translated another novel by the same period, about by the same writer, a historical novel about the same period, uh, dealing with the experiences of women on the outside of the jails, the women who were who were left to fend for themselves when their uh, their husbands, sons, uh, brothers uh, were imprisoned. Um, uh, so I now have uh, two two what I consider significant Indonesian novels waiting to appear in English, and that's really been most of what's been occupying my attention. Wow, that that sounds uh, really really interesting. Uh, can people find that um, online at all? Uh, uh, no, not not as yet. Um, it, 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 the the publisher in Jakarta is is called the Lontar Foundation, um, and it will be mentioned there somewhere among their forthcoming books. But um, until something comes out, uh, we really don't have anything about it. Okay, yeah, that's uh, well. We look forward to to that coming out. It sounds very interesting. But I want to. Thank you so much for this interview. I, I kept you all uh, a lot longer than the hour, I promise. It, it's been really in, informative and enjoyable. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Once again, the book is Indonesian Notebook, a source book on Richard Wright and the Bandung Conference, published by Duke University Press in 2016. And we've been speaking to the editors, Brian Roberts and Keith Fulcher. And thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.